Welcome to the That Don't Fit podcast, a podcast where we're dedicated to talking about life and life's real issues that cross racial and generational lines. My name is Jared Torrance, and I'm here with my co-host, Andy Farmer. We're friends, we're pastors, we're wanting to help people talk and process life in a crazy world. Welcome to the conversation. All right, guys, welcome back to another episode of That Don't Fit. Mm. This is Jared Torrance, got Andy Farmer here. And a very special guest, John Anwuchekwa. Yeah. Thank, thank you, you for joining us this afternoon. Glad to be here, man. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, a while back, we talked about my favorite books. One of my favorite books of the year. Okay. Hold up. We're good. And we had uh, We Go I'll On. just be your book caddy. Hold yeah, on. why don't you be my book caddy? <laughs> that'll, be, <laughs> that'll be great. Actually, can you flash the other two up right okay, there? there? Here we, we go. go. Uh, got Two books okay. on prayer, one called Prayer, one if I, What If I Don't Desire to Pray, and then We Go On as well. This one was on my list of favorite books that I read last year. And so, the author himself. There we go. Is <laughs> with us today. So, why don't we do this? John, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, kind of what you do, and then we'll just start rolling through questions and we'll talk about yeah. your books and who you are. Yeah. So, uh, John Anwachekwa. Uh Right now, one of the main things that I do is I'm a husband. Uh, uh, yeah, it'll be 16 years for us this fall. Wonderful. Uh, my daughter, uh, she just turned six. Um, funny story I told <laughs> him. So my daughter's growing up living a very different life than I live. Um, uh, so I, yeah, I'm a yeah author, entrepreneur, speaker. I've been a pastor for. 16 years. I resigned at the end of last year uh, to spend time to lean more more into the rest of the stuff. And we can talk about all that stuff later. But my daughter, <laughs> we were um we were on a flight to Scotland mm. and London. I had so many sky miles that I just had to spend them. So I took my daughter, my wife, and my wife's mom. And um my wife and her mom are terrible flyers. So we always put them together and me and my, my daughter hang out. So <laughs> me and my daughter get a first class upgrade. We go from Atlanta to JFK and then we get ready to go from there to Scotland. They put us on an international plane from mm -hmm. Atlanta yeah, to yeah. JFK. Oh, yeah. okay. So our first class upgrade is in the little like pods yeah. With, yeah. with the bed. And it's the first time my daughter's been on a plane in months. <laughs> So we get there, we push the little thing back. I show her that it goes all the way down into a bed and she's just in heaven. <laughs> so we get to JFK, we switch planes and now we're on the regular seats to, to <laughs> yeah. So she starts to lean and push back and I'm like, sweetheart, this one, it don't have a bed. She's like, what do you mean it don't have a bed? And that's when I was like, you, you yeah. are living a very different life. <laughs> Where, where's my hot towel? This is what where's I'm saying. Where are the slippers? It's, right. it's like, sweetheart, you are living a very different life. They don't just upgrade us like that. So yeah. Um, so um, yeah, I um, I spend my time now uh, creating content resources uh, to help leaders and to help yeah people, both Christians and non Christians, mm -hmm. think better about. Yeah, life and the important things about life. Yeah. Okay. So something to know about John is that <clears throat> he is not a man who 
has very little on his plate ever. Like <laughs> this, this man has got so many, his hands in so many pots and he's doing them well. And so you've got, you know, his writing projects that he does. He does these uh, story writing cohorts. He does every once in a while, he'll do like teaching cohorts. He uh, runs a, a coffee business. Can you talk to us about Portrait Coffee? Okay. Portrait Coffee. Because <laughs> y'all, start... y'all know I love coffee. So yep. let's, let's get this going. So we started Portrait Coffee right before the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just brought out of my love for mm-hmm. coffee. And um, there was another guy at our church who, uh, it's so funny. Uh, when you talk about people that love coffee, especially black folks that love coffee, <laughs> and this is why we try to change it. I'm pastoring a church in the hood. It's mostly black. And the way that I meet this guy was folks at our church was like, what? All right, John, you like coffee. There's this other dude at our church, and he really likes coffee. Y'all should be friends. Right? <laughs> <laughs> because we were at a predominantly black church, two yeah, black dudes yeah. that love coffee. <laughs> yes. So we're that. like, this is the problem with specialty coffee. <laughs> so we said, let's start it, right? And um, uh, our, uh, the aim of it was this, right? So we... Uh, you know, started this church in the hood, West mm-hmm. End, yep. right? Yeah, you're from there, so you know, mm-hmm. right? Poor, disenfranchised. And for years, we spent our time doing job readiness programs at the church. Mm-hmm. So with this group, Jobs for Life, mm-hmm. nice. bringing folks that are unemployed and underemployed, and we teach them all the stuff about, you know, work and the mm-hmm. importance of it and starting to show up on time and this and this. So we would get all these folks ready and graduate and a certificate. And they're like, we're ready to work. And there were no jobs. So it's like, oh, the problem isn't that people aren't job ready. The problem is there are no career opportunities Mm, in the West End where somebody who lives in the West End can have not just a job, but a career uh, that can help to sustain them. So we say, all right, what's an industry that we can bring into the West End that somebody can learn in the time that it takes them to learn a trade, but the earning potential is um, high enough to where a career at a place like this could help them stave the tide of gentrification that sweeps yeah, yeah. away so so many folks there. And it was uh, coffee, right? Mm-hmm. And um, right, so this is the thing that people don't know about coffee. Uh, <laughs> You know, when you think of like specialty coffee, right? Mm-hmm. Like I, I've i done for the past 12 years what me and you just did. So <laughs> yes, he yes. picked me up from the airport, uh-huh. right? So I fly into a city, picks me up from the airport. We have lunch mm-hmm. before we prepare to do this. It's like, yo, let's, let's go somewhere and grab coffee. Good coffee. So I'll be like, yo, what's the best coffee in Philly and yeah. LA and... Memphis and uh, mm-hmm. San Francisco. And they'll tell me we'd walk into the store. And as I walk into the store, I'm one of the only people that look like me. At the store. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I started to feel like, man, I love specialty coffee, but it feels like all the schools that I grew up in where I'm the mm-hmm. only black kid in my class, like something's got to change. So at one point I'm like, man, I just don't want to be in another setting like this. So then I start to read books. And I find out, oh, wait a minute, coffee was actually discovered 800 AD. So over mm-hmm. a 
millennia ago. Mm -hmm. It's discovered in Ethiopia mm -hmm. by a goat farmer, mm -hmm. right, mm -hmm. who yep. sees his goats eat this fruit. And then I found out, oh, no, no, wait, wait, wait. Coffee actually grows along the equator. So coffee primarily grows where black and brown folks grow. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But by the time it turns to this $250 billion industry, there's not a lot of people that look, look like us. So MARTA in Atlanta is yeah. the best picture. MARTA's a train, yep. right? Mm -hmm. And it runs north to south, east to west. Yeah. When you get on airport station, the southmost train station, um, and you board that train, you look uh, uh, around that train, and Marta looks very, very black and brown. It looks like Wakanda, right? It is, <laughs> it is black and brown. In the 20-minute train ride that it takes you to, to go north, there's two things that'll change about the train, the inside of the train and the outside of the train. Mm -hmm. So with each stop that you go up north, uh, what you have is black and brown people get off the train and more and more white folks get on. So it goes from Wakanda to Switzerland yeah, in yeah. 20 minutes, right? Yeah. But it's not just that. The outside of the train changes. Mm -hmm. With each stop that you go up north, the economic conditions don't just improve, they skyrocket. Mm -hmm. So you have black and brown people getting off this train before they can take advantage of the economic opportunities in a city that they helped build. Yeah. Um, Willie Jennings is going to say it like this, uh, geography is never an accident, mm -hmm. right? And what we found out is, is if you take the coffee supply chain and you put it right on top of MARTA, it's the exact same thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Coffee grows where black and brown folks grow. But with each stop that you go up north through processing, through exporting, through importing, through roasting, through retailing by the time you buy the $20 bag mm -hmm. off of the shelf that contributes to the $250 billion economic impact, uh, black and brown people make up, I think about 1% of mm -hmm. that yeah. wealth. And so it was, it felt like not just an unfortunate inconvenience, it felt like, no, I think this is an injustice that we can correct. And mm -hmm. so we had the idea hey, I think we can tell a good story surrounding coffee. That what I saw or what we saw was in the landscape of specialty coffee, there were people that always like the dominant narrative was around the quality of the cup. And we said, I think we can create um, a more meaningful mm. cup of coffee. And so- mm. Started this story and, um, you know, launched this Kickstarter, you know, in January 2020. We raised $30,000 in 30 days. Oh, and we no. said, we're off to the races. <laughs> and right there in the West End, uh, found this space. It's perfect. Coffee shops, they, they work. They're going <laughs> to yeah. stay for a long time. So March 1st, 2020, we said, hey. Why don't we just sign a five-year lease on oh. this building and get ready to get started? And we signed that five-year lease, and it was fantastic. Mm -hmm. um, a week later, uh, this uh, is the yeah. crazy thing. No, no, no. A movie crew comes, and they say, hey, we're shooting the Aretha Franklin movie. We scouted out your location while y'all are getting your permitting to fix up the inside. Can we rent it? We'll pay y'all twice your, your rent each month. And mm -hmm. we said, yeah, fine. 
a week later, COVID shuts things oh, down. Man. Well, they come back to us and they say, um, hey, uh, we're just going to have to pay to store our stuff somewhere else. Can we just pay y'all rent until this thing blows over in a few weeks? And uh, we're like, yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. They paid us rent until Thanksgiving of that year. Wow. So that very next day, my partners, we all get on the line. We read an Andy Crouch article where at the beginning of the pandemic, he's like, listen, anybody that tells you that this, that COVID is a bad snowstorm, it'll be over in a few days, a bad blizzard it'll be done in a few weeks anybody that tells you that they don't know what they're saying mm -hmm. he's like this is the ice age the only people that are going to thrive are the people that fundamentally change the way that they do business so overnight we said all right hey we're actually an e-commerce roastery mm -hmm. who may or may not have a shop at some point in time mm. and we're going to spend our time in digital hospitality and mm -hmm. telling the most meaningful stories that mm -hmm. relates to coffee and a few months later it's like oh we were on good morning america for a 90 second spot a few months later wow. you know google gives us a grant so that we could start then keurig starts to reach out and you know we're in times square with them by the end of the year and then van sneakers and a year from that time target.com reaches yeah, out yeah. then kroger then uh another big box retailer who shall remain nameless until we finally lock things down. Yes. And now three years later, we're getting ready to open up our first uh, shop. But it was like, we've, uh, yeah, wow. yeah. Food and wine last year, they said, hey, let's rank the best coffee roasters in the US, the 50 best by state mm -hmm. and Best coffee roast in the state of Georgia. Wow. <laughs> That's great. I love it. And Do you roasting in the West End? In the West End. Great. So, you know, five blocks from my house. Wow. Four blocks from the church that we planted. So cool. And uh, yeah, and I, I think the biggest success is that uh, we've been able to create jobs, but more, more, more than that, we've been able to create careers. So mm -hmm. I think we mm. just brought on our, our sixth full full-time staff, benefits paid for. Wow. They're paid well enough to be able to live there. Endless. And it was like, oh, all right. Yeah. So this is just one small way. All right, we're fixing the problem of yeah. opportunities that lack yeah. there in the West. That's so, so cool. it's, yeah. So lots yeah. of stuff like That's that. Just, yeah. <laughs> okay, I, I'm okay. gonna, this is a flag for later on in the conversation. Yeah. I'd love to hear your thoughts on gentrification. Okay. And how that, how that plays out. Yeah. Yeah. And just how you try to deal with it. Yeah. Because when it comes, it comes in a wave. Yeah. And so I just only at some point. Yeah. You know. That's good. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. We can talk about it when and ever. Now. Let's talk about now. Okay. <laughs> yeah. There's this interesting book. Um so how, did you, for yeah. folks who don't gentrification is just basically an area in a, in a, in a city. Yeah. Where uh, it suddenly becomes popular. Mm -hmm. People move into the city by moving into it. Mm -hmm. uh, that area, they start driving up rents and things like that. Yep. And the people who live there end up not able to afford where they're out. living. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they have to find somewhere else. And it's actually viewed in cities as what the goal is. Right. 
Yep. You know, without really attention to where do the people go who live yeah. there, and it destabilizes neighborhoods. Absolutely. And uh, so, but but economically, yeah, <laughs> in the bottom line, yeah, it works well for cities. So yeah. you have a tension between what works well economically for the city overall, in terms of you know, yeah. in, in terms of who's in charge. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> and then, uh, but but you got populations being uprooted and displaced. Yeah. Yeah. Around. Yeah. There's this book by, um, I think his name is Peter Moskowitz called How to Kill a City. Mm -hmm. And what he does is he just goes through like and tells the story of, what's it? Detroit, San Francisco, um, Detroit, San Francisco, New Orleans, mm -hmm. two other cities. I, I can't remember. Uh, Brooklyn maybe, and one more. And his point was most times people think gentrification starts when they see it like sprout, mm -hmm. right? So I, I think like for us, right? Um, uh, let's see, in the mortgage, crisis of 2008 and 2009. Mm -hmm. The zip code that I live in and the one that's right north of me, 30310 and 30314 were two of the hardest hit in the US. Mm -hmm. So 10 years ago, uh, 11 years ago, when folks from our core team for the church plant first started to move mm. to the West End, it was, you would go on a street and, you know, if there were, you know, 16 homes on a street, 14 of them would be vacant. So when they first moved in, I think some of the first people to buy homes in the West End, I think of a buddy of mine who, there was a 3,000 square foot home that needed to be gutted and fixed. He bought the home for $30,000. Gutted it and fixed it for another 80. So he, he was 110 all in to yeah. a 3,000 square foot home. That same home in the West End today is $900,000, right? Just 10 years later. Yeah. And so most times I think people think gentrification is the point where things start to climb. But what was interesting, what he, he brings up in that book is like, no, 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 no. That's like stage one or stage two. Stage zero or some of the incentives that work out like um, before all that change takes place, right? Mm -hmm. So he talks about um, Detroit, right? Uh, what is it? Quicken Loans Arena? Uh, he talked about like the mortgage companies that were loaning some of the subprime loans mm -hmm that contributed to the crisis, when things fell apart and they needed to incentivize businesses to come back in and build, uh, the people that were the problem actually got the greatest tax incentives to come back and to buy the land that was now dispossessed because they gave people loans that they couldn't afford and they had to, to, mm -hmm. to, to move out. So the one of the main things that he brings up is that by the time you notice it, yeah. 
it's already too yeah, far yeah. gone yeah. to reverse it, right? Mm -hmm. So there's an aspect of like, what do you really do, right? Like yeah. that what we felt is that, all right, there's a tidal wave of gentrification and it's coming for people in the West End um, and there's not enough time to build up a dam or to <laughs> lay down sandbags to soak all of that stuff up. That the best thing that we can do on our end, those that don't have um, tax incentives mm -hmm. and millions of dollars, the best that we can do is try our best to teach folks yeah. how to swim, right? And so it's like, all right, in a economy that's not just based off of industrial work, but knowledge work mm -hmm. how do you change the economic trajectory of a community yeah. right so so your church there your your pastor is yeah they're committed long term long term right yeah but the challenge is as it sort of happens around you does the church change do people what happens to all that yeah you know how, how does that community yeah not get swept away yeah so one of the interesting things is that our community was right by the um, Atlanta University Center, Clark yep. Morehouse yep. Clark, Bell. Yep. Mm -hmm. So early on, um, the community, the homes that were owned were owned by professors yeah. and their mm -hmm. families. So there wasn't as much instability in the West End. People, yeah. people, people that stayed there, they did they own their homes. And then we lived at a time, or we live in a time where the powers that be saw it and they actually put a freeze on property taxes for, for folks that were there. So case in point, since the pandemic, my home value has gone up 300%. So I could not afford to live in the West End. If I sold my house and tried to buy it back, yeah, I <laughs> couldn't afford. Right? So Can, that's where couldn't we, buy from yourself, yeah. right? <laughs> that's where we are now. But it's like usually when when that stuff takes place, your property taxes triple. Sure, yeah. If our yeah. property taxes tripled, it's that's like, it. yeah, yeah, yeah. I I'd, I'd have to sell because I couldn't afford to pay it. But they froze them, which yeah. keeps wow. folks there. Yeah. Um, so I think there's yeah things like that that we're trying to help folks yeah. learn, all right, hey, here's how you can do that. We've got a, um, there is a, a girl at our church, my wife's best friend, has an amazing story. Single mother, 20 years old, pregnant in college, college dropout, worked at a bank, worked her way up, mm -hmm. left her bank, started real estate, part of the church now, she's a multi-million dollar real estate Ooh. investor that lives there. And what she does is she takes it upon her to educate people on how to tap into the equity that's in their homes to keep them there. So yeah. there's wow. lots of folks that live there in the West End and it's, uh, oh, you're actually sitting on a gold mine, yeah. but you don't know it. Let me help you see yeah. selling your home and getting a chance to move out is not the yeah. only thing. So there's yeah. that, but there's also, Right, so I think of where we were, things started to change so much that one of the pastors from our church said, all right, hey, I bought this house for 110 and it was 
this is what, 2018, 2019, um, it's like, a, this is only going to go up and up and up. But now my house is worth 460. There's an area a mile and a half north of us where across the street, they built a $1.4 billion stadium. English Avenue still had city streets that hadn't been paved in 30 years. Yeah. So you talk about a poor neighborhood and that's it. So we had about eight to 10 families mm -hmm. from our church. They say, hey, um, instead of continually trying to get people without means to come to where we are, maybe we move and go to where they are. So they sold their houses and bought land for much more than it was worth. And they built homes in one of the most poorest mm. communities in Atlanta so that they could plant roots and be oh. there with that group. And they've gotten plugged in and they serve wow. there and it's close to the church. And so now what we do is we see our church and the hope is that it would be this hub where we would love to see that church yeah. help plant and start other churches and communities that are close by. And we talked about this at lunch is a, um, we have, we're trying to reprogram our church and churches like ours uh, in the way that we define church success. Mm -hmm. I think we live mm -hmm. in a place where people equate a church's success with a church's ability to being self-sustaining. Mm -hmm. And that is American. That's not <laughs> sure, yeah. biblical, right? Like I think of Paul saying to the Corinthian church, like, yo, like, man, look at this. Like, like y'all saw how they didn't, Macedonia, and they, yeah, yeah. yeah they gave to help because we're all in this thing together and it's it's just so odd like mm. when when you think of not just church but nonprofits mm -hmm. nobody looks at a nonprofit in an inner city community mm -hmm. and says when's this nonprofit going to be self-sustaining they they said no 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 this is a community of need yeah. mm -hmm. and usually communities of need don't have the means within the community mm. to sustain it yeah. So we're going to start something that we expect to be sustained by help and support from the outside. Mm -hmm. And success is, all right, can we sustain this thing that the community needs yeah. but cannot afford mm -hmm. for as long as they need it? And our hope is that, oh, no, 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 we want to see the same thing take place with churches. Mm -hmm. So we partnered up with like-minded groups and started a yeah, church planning network in the fall of 2020 that was aimed at yeah, helping to plant churches in distressed and neglected mm -hmm. uh, black and brown communities. And yeah. yeah. And that's called the- The Crete Collective. Crete, yeah. Yep. Yes. yes. Mm -hmm. So yeah. Oh yeah, man. That's right. We made, we, uh, we planted, I think we planted 14 churches over the years. Come on. <laughs> um, but two of them we planted, I think we had we planted in urban areas. One was one was Brooklyn. Yeah. Which 
was urban, but it was we right. quickly realized we couldn't yeah. afford to plant that. Right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, we, had, we, we, we planted it with a guy with like three older kids. Yeah. And needed a three bedroom apartment. Yeah. In Oof. Brooklyn. Oof. You know, they could never make it work. Yeah. They couldn't make it work. And we planned, but years ago, we planted one in Chester, which is a poor community yeah. down here. Yeah. And that our big mistake, we ended up having to fold it back in here. Mm. We were not, in this, but uh, because I thought we had. We had we had self sustaining as the goal, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, and we didn't plan mm -hmm. for uh, we just didn't plan for it, right? Right? Yeah, yeah. And so you know, toss the lesson. Mm. So if you're doing something, our our region, we have a church that's in Frankfurt. In Frankfurt. I was just going to yeah. bring up that church, which is just literally. I mean, their their church. You walk outside the door, the L, right <laughs> over the top, <laughs> right, like you know, Frankfurt <laughs> Avenue. Yeah, you know? yeah. And uh, and so we're just like we're in it for the long haul. Yeah, yeah. You know, the guy there is doing a great work and the they just bought a great. building and just, just got a building. Yeah. The whole region's kind of put together. We're, we're making it work. And so, you know, it, the members love, love the dude. There. That's amazing. It's, it's, right? it's, yeah. it's, yeah. it's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. It's oh, that's dope. incredible. Yeah. So, uh, but that's the case where, you know, guys, yeah, we're going to, we're going to do this. You've got to, you got to put skin in the game. You got to keep skin in the game. Yeah. 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 Mm. Yeah. yeah. That there's a, you know, there's an aspect where it's like, you know, the norm is that when you have kids, yeah, that at 18 years old, yeah, your kids would leave the house, they go to college, they get a job, yeah. they get married, about yeah. yeah. But it's like some kids have different needs that yeah. require them yeah. to be supported sure. for yeah. longer. It says nothing about the dignity of the child, but just everything about yeah. the particular needs that they have yeah. and it's, uh, oh, no, no, this is all, yeah. yo, it's all family, right? <laughs> <laughs> and like one is not more successful exactly, than yeah. the other. Yeah. Well, Steve Bound, the guy who's uh, playing the church, he, he, says, uh, he says, you guys supply the money, we'll supply the needs and the crazy stories. This is it. <laughs> this is what I'm saying. <laughs> That's it. That's it. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. So, anyway, that's back good. to you, man. Yes, no, back to it. That's great. So, talked a lot about the church plant you did, mm -hmm. um, which a lot of that story is in the book. Look at that thing. Come yeah. on. <laughs> this book right here. This book right here. Yeah. We go on. Yeah. And so, this is a book. Well, yeah, why don't you tell us about it? Walks a bit through Ecclesiastes and uh, kind of the lessons like you've been walking through. Yeah. Um, that book has been, seems to be a balm to your soul. Mm -hmm. And uh, the difficulty that it was planting the church, you had some yeah. circumstances that were unexpected. Yeah. And uh, yes, yeah, so why don't you go ahead and take it yeah. away? Yeah. So April 14th, 2015, six weeks before we're getting ready to launch the church, speaking at a conference in Orlando, um, we're sitting at dinner at a Longhorn Steakhouse, and I get repeated calls from my mom. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's my mom, you know send it to voicemail, but she keeps calling. So I go outside, I'm like, yo, I'll be right back. I, I talk to her, she's like, hey, I, you know, can you get a hold of your brother? I've been trying to get a hold of him and that. So I call him and I get on the phone with my God brother and my God brother says, uh, yeah, Sam passed away. Mm. And, and I thought he said Sam passed out. And it's like, yo, he passed out, wake him up, right? And he's like, no, Sam passed away mm. and I just remember like yeah just like bawling and mm. crying and you know just being out there with strangers and um you know then I've like get myself together 
and I'm the third of five kids. So then I basically have to call my mom, mm. my dad, and my brothers and sisters and just repeat the news to all of them and um, drive back that night. And uh, it was like my life, and my world, you know, fell apart, right? Uh, C.S. Lewis is going to say, um, you know, when he writes about the death of his wife, he's like, uh, you know, I thought my faith was a temple. But when she died, I realized that it was nothing more than a house of cards. Mm. How quick it crumbles. Mm. And that's what I felt and that's what I learned. And so I just found myself at this spot where I'm questioning, you know, all of the things that I said about the goodness of God. And here I am six weeks later mm. needing to, you know, preach and tell this church. And I just did not feel any of it was true. And um, those first, that, that first year was just a unique season in the life of our church. So the next week, my wife's best friend, her husband's, or her husband loses a sister to cancer. Mm -hmm. June 7th, the first day of the church, the church launch goes great. A couple hundred folks there for the first one. And, that evening, my wife's grandmother dies. And so Saturday after the church launches, we're driving back from a funeral of her yeah. grandma. And every like six weeks in the Life War Church for that next year, somebody lost a mother mm -hmm. or a close yeah. one. And so it was just this season of just yeah. death and like a church of young 30-somethings being reminded that yeah. Life doesn't mm -hmm. add up. The inputs don't match the outputs. Mm -hmm. Things aren't fair. And I think it all came to a head January 2020 where um, uh, a lady that had been a you know church mother for us, um, I baptized her in October, the same day that I baptized my wife's mom. Mm -hmm. And uh, January 2016, she died of cancer and it was, you know, at that point I've been pastoring 10 years and it was the first funeral I've ever had to do for somebody that was in our church. Yeah. And it just yeah, crushed us. And I think I, I found myself in a depression, right? Mm -hmm. And I mean, I tell the story at the start of the book. So uh, I was January, 2016, I'm speaking at, uh, the University of Georgia. I'm mm -hmm. friends with the Texas A&M men's basketball coach. Yeah. Uh, Alex Caruso oh, and okay. Daniel House are playing for the team at that time. <laughs> so I'm speaking and I come back, I'm getting ready to take some shoes back at the mall. And uh, a group of these kids, they take the spot that I was waiting for. And I reach up and I just say, hey, that was my spot. And they're like, no, 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 we're just gonna back out. And so I'm like, all right. It take a long time. So I inch up, they're laughing and they're climbing out of the back seat. So here I am, Saturday night, you know, I'm getting ready to preach the next day. I rolled down my window and I cuss them out. Yeah. And I was shocked. Mm -hmm. 
not just because of the words that I said, but because of the fluency, right? Yeah, yo, yo, I right, took really. four years of Spanish out. in high yeah, school and I lost it. Yeah. I hadn't cussed yeah. anybody out in 15 it years. Comes back. Just, it oh, comes quick. Back, yeah. yeah, stringing together <laughs> a phrase. I was like, oh my goodness. Yeah, that was that. seamless. And immediately, I'm just mm. like, I'm not okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I call my wife. I call two of my best friends at the time and I'm like, listen, I'm not okay. Mm-hmm. And they say, we know. <laughs> We've just been waiting on you to know. Mm-hmm. So my church grants me a sabbatical. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've got this little 200 square foot shed on the back of my house that I've turned into a study. Yeah. So I spent a bunch of time in there and I'm reading the book of Ecclesiastes. And it was that book that lifted me up out of my mm-hmm. depression mm-hmm. because I realized oh, I'm not crazy. <laughs> the world really is as broken as I yeah. feel that it is. Mm-hmm. And I think it was like the opening words of that book, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. It gripped me, not because of what was said, but because of who said it, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like here I was, I lost it all and I felt that way. And he had it all mm-hmm. and he felt that way. Mm-hmm. And I just felt like, oh, wait a minute. Um, if he's on a mountaintop and I'm in a valley and he comes to the same conclusion that I did, mm-hmm. then maybe depression isn't circumstantial. Mm-hmm. And if depression isn't circumstantial, then maybe joy isn't either. Maybe hope isn't either. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. it was reading through that book that mm-hmm. I learned, mm-hmm. oh, grief and hope aren't parallel streets. We got to choose mm-hmm. which one we're going to be on. They yeah. intersect. And so it was just saying, all right, listen, if I feel this way, maybe there's a bunch of other people that feel this way. And so let me just do my best to put my experience uh, here in a book and put my heart here on a page. And yeah, and the way that the book is laid out, it's like, I didn't want that season of life was just so vivid and so real to me that I didn't think it should be confined to the drab living quarters that is yeah, a, yeah words on a black and white page. Mm-hmm. And I wanted yeah. people to see what I saw to feel what, what I felt. And so I tried to yeah, curate a book that was yeah. an experience and that's what led me to write that book on grief and hope. So did it spill out or, or was it work and toil to write it? Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, 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 it was both. Like yeah. there was some times where I just felt like that the words like flowed yeah. and it spilt out. And there was a large part where it was like it was work. So so I decided to write the book in 2018. Mm-hmm. The first few people that I talked to about mm-hmm. the book, they're like, "Oh yeah, 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 we'll throw a nice cover on the front and you can just write a trade book and I'm like, no, like I want pictures and I want it to, yeah, yeah like no, like I, I want pictures and I want it to be the inverse of what people think from a book. Most times with books, there's a picture on the front yeah. and it's only words. Right. I'm like, no, life is so backwards that I would love for it if there were just words on the front mm-hmm. and pictures throughout the book. I want the book to physically feel heavy because Grief's heavy. Like I want there to be pictures on the inside and 
there were some people that I talked to and their eyes just like glazed over <laughs> as if they'd never seen a coffee table book. Bro. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, I decided to write the book. I think I signed the contract the end of 2019 at the beginning of 2020. And it's like, oh yeah, no, no, I could do, do this in a year. Um, <laughs> and, and then the pandemic hit. <laughs> And I was writing a book on grief and hope mm. uh, while the world was collectively grieving for yeah. a few years. Yeah. And that was the most difficult part about it. Trying to write a book about grief and hope yeah. when, uh, mm. yeah, gr yeah, grief was bold yeah. capital letters yeah. and <laughs> italicized yeah. and hope. <laughs> you know, was in three point font, made it incredibly <laughs> difficult. So, I mean, yeah. there's a lot of revisions of the book where it's like, hey man, this is honest, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> this actually, this actually feels like a suicide note. <laughs> so we kind of need you to turn up the hope. Crank just up that hope yeah, just yeah, a little yeah. bit. Did well, you go through, I'm just gonna, I'm just yes, gonna, yes, I, yeah. I, I like to write, so I'm just curious yeah. question. This is great. Did you go through this thing? Okay, listen, I, you know, there's just too much me. I, I'm, 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 you know, I, I just feel like there's too much me here. I feel like I'm, I'm narcissistic in writing. I'm, or did you feel like no? I'm able to set, separate me as who I am. Yeah. From 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 the story I'm trying yeah. to tell. So it was. It's funny, like, so I kind of did that at first, mm -hmm. and I was trying to do that. But with the content of it, it didn't flow. Yeah, mm. you know, like this feels like a mm. like a lecture. Like yeah, yeah. And what I found was that it was uh, what resonated with people the best were not the wisdom that I shared, but the um, the points of weakness that I shared. Yeah, sure. That what caused them to like for their eyes to light up mm -hmm. was like. Mm -hmm. Man, you cussed them kids out at the store? <laughs> oh my God. All right. Because I thought that I was. And so it's like, yo, 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 yo. wait, wait. I'm not advocating right, for it. Right, I'm just right, right, telling this is yeah. this is descriptive, yes. not prescriptive, right? <laughs> oh, he did it. So therefore, let me go ahead and But I learned that the things that like grip like folks would mm. say, me too. Yes. No, yeah. me too. Oh, yeah, me yeah. too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that was when I was like, oh, I'm not crazy. And people yes. felt like they weren't and mm -hmm. so that to me was the thing that just pushed me towards yeah. no actually um this won't really do anybody any good if it comes off as propositional mm -hmm. yeah right yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah and i will say this i i love marking up my books i couldn't bring a pen to this book <laughs> yeah. I, I really it's the only book on my shelf that is not all the way marked yeah, up like, i mean it's just like it's i don't know where's the camera is it this guy is it this one it's it's so aesthetically pleasing. Hold on, that first picture. Yes. Aaron Fender, E-R-I-N. So my business partner in coffee, hold it up. I can hold his it up. name is Aaron Fender, A-A-R-O-N. His wife's name is Aaron Fender, E-R-I-N. Uh -uh. That first picture, she took that picture in Baltimore as mm -hmm. part of her MFA. Mm -hmm. And as we sat and taught, the very first time I saw that, I'm like, Aaron, yes. I need that picture to be there in the, I I just love this yeah. scene and the mood that it sets. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, look at this. We still got some of this. Yeah. We still see it. 
And it's like, you know, not every page has pictures on it, but a lot of them do. They've got these different kind of things. And then there's little boxes of like even the chapter introductions and then the boxes of uh, devotions and questions that you can ask. It's like, it's, it's a fantastic book. Yeah. And I think mm-hmm. I, I, here, even hearing all the specifics of what you like, why you wanted to feel heavy and all different right. things. I'm just like, man, like, I don't know who you cast this vision to, but they absolutely uh, it. like this is Daniel Peterson, Jennifer <laughs> Mormon, my guy Steve Watts, <laughs> Tiffany Forrester, the whole crew. Yeah, just special, special people. That's great. There's been uh I meant to tell you this earlier, but the, the book it's it just your your the the grief you're experiencing is very unique mm-hmm. and specified, mm-hmm. but the way you talk about grief makes it a universal experience because grief is yeah. universal. And so I remember there was one time I, uh, we were at a retreat, <laughs> we were at a retreat and I, I was suggesting this book to my wife and she's like, yeah, I'll, I'll look through it. She started flying through that book. I went out, I think breakfast or something. I come back in, she sprawled out on the bed weeping <laughs> and I'm just, I'm just like, yo, yo, are you okay? She's like, no, it's a great book. I'm just like, been so helped by it. I was like, dang. Yeah, and she ended up finishing the book, uh, weeks and, and things later on, but yeah. she's just, but that's the general experience that people have when they yeah. go through this book. Yeah. They're just like, oh, this helps make sense of what I've been feeling. Right, right. right. And that hope dial is in there big. Yeah. And so it doesn't leave people like, oh, I'm upset too. It's just like, oh, but also. And yeah. so you did a, a great job with that. Shout man. out to my guy, Steve Watts, because Steve was the one that's like, yo, hey, John. <laughs> man, you're really hopeful, but you're making me want to yeah, climb a tall ladder. <laughs> right? So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my goodness. All right, so what have we hit? We've hit We Go On, we've hit Portrait, we've hit Creek Collective. We haven't talked about the, even how we met. Okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so yeah let's, let's, go, let's go back to the beginning. Back okay. to the beginning, our origin story. So it was, it was one of those things where I was just kind of like in the right place at the right time. It, it was around 2020. In the pandemic. In the pandemic, things just shut down. So people you, are just- People said it was a bad year. <laughs> yes. some would like, say some people say a rough year yeah. and um you had posted something on instagram instagram i did a random q a because <laughs> yeah. back then i was just online right everyone was just online back then and people were saying like something people were asking questions about like, like teaching teaching, right? teaching yeah. Yeah. yeah and i was like answering some Mm-hmm. But then I got a bunch of the same ones, and it's like, hey, y'all, like, <laughs> can we just do like a Zoom mm-hmm. so that I'll just answer them all at the same time? And people were were like, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, did we do the Zoom the first time, or did I just say, hey, who, who would, would be, be interested? Yeah, because that's when I saw. I was like, this this thing's only up for twenty because it was a story. Yeah, it wasn't even a post; it was a story. It's like yeah. this thing's gone in twenty four hours. I was like, yeah. Put me in, put, put me in whatever it is. And so it was just like, hey, if I put together a like, what, four week course mm-hmm. or six week thing yeah. and just on Zoom, who who would be up for it? And just a bunch of like a hundred people <laughs> saying, me, 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 me. So we did it. Yeah. And it was like, oh, I was just here. Yeah, uh, you know, this is what I do when I think this. I <laughs> mean, and so I just put that, and yeah, and 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 that's how we that's how we met. first started off. Yeah, we did that that little teaching cohort, and I was like, yeah, it was great. And then there's been some interactions since then as well. And then uh, this past year, you did another cohort, a different kind of cohort, 
which this is a, a new thing. It was, what is it? It is the uh, Sculpture Story. Yeah. Yep. Sculpture yeah, Story. Yeah. For which the name, as a, go ahead, tell us about why is it called that. Okay. It's, so it's, it's a, by the way, folks listening, this man lives in illustration. He, they, <laughs> they pour out of him in each and every sentence, and it's, it's fantastic. Yeah. So go ahead. So it's, uh, I started to do this one because after we did Portrait mm-hmm. and we told that story, that martyr story, my partner sat back and he's like, the first time he he heard it, he's like, John, that's a million dollar illustration. And I'm like, yeah, sure. I, mm-hmm. I mean, he's my friend. So it kind of feels like you go to prom and your mom's like, you look like a million bucks. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, mom. Right. But then, but then it was like, oh no, 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 no. It turned into, no, no, it's a million dollar business. Right. It's, mm-hmm. um, and then I had a bunch of friends. They're like, hey, can you help me do what you did there? And so I've done it for, yeah, you know, probably three or four friends since that time. And we saw them go like from six figure to seven figure businesses from launching to this. And it's like, man, people, man, people making a lot of money off this. It's <laughs> <laughs> up so, to me. Right. Well, so they're like, so then they push me and they're mm-hmm. like, hey, John, you should actually teach people your framework. Mm-hmm. And for me, it's like, all right, we were mentoring a bunch of church planners at the time mm-hmm. through Crete, and they were getting ready to like go in and start to raise funds. And it's like, oh, no, no, no. I've seen that, all right, if you're going to raise funds, right, the same storytelling that you need to make money, you need it to raise money. So I brought them in and and said, hey, you can do it for free, Mm -hmm. right? And then there were were other folks that came and it's like, let's start it. And the way that I came up with it was this, uh, when it comes to storytelling, the reason why most people are bad uh, is because they treat storytelling like it's a rock collection, right? My daughter, started a rock collection in the pandemic. <laughs> collection. <laughs> it was this random uh, assortment of unspecial rocks. Gravel. <laughs> the only thread that they had was her interest in it. Yeah. And she would be like, dad, come and look at this. Well, like I'm her dad. Yeah. So I was like, oh, sweetheart, that's great. And she's like, no, I'm not done. And she thought the value was in addition. So she would just add more and add more. And I'm like, all right, I'm here. But the only reason I'm here is because I'm held hostage by the fact that I'm your parent. Right? I've got an obligation. And most people think storytelling is about addition. Let me just add a bunch of things. But when you do that, the only people that come are the people that are held hostage. Where when you learn the story, the value is not in uh, addition, but it's in subtraction, skilled subtraction. There's a reason why people pay money to go and see the sculpture of Michelangelo's David. And it is a rock, Mm -hmm. but it's been skillfully subtracted and the value comes not in what's there, but in what's not there, right? Removing the unnecessary so the necessary can mm-hmm. speak. And so it's like, I'm like, oh, it's actually the same thing with the 
story, right? It's like people have great missions and visions and ideas and mm -hmm. projects, but it's just, yeah, crowded behind yeah. a rock collection instead of a yeah. sculpture. So then I, yeah, was like, well, let me just try my hand at this and it, and it was fantastic. We, yeah, <laughs> we linked back up. Yeah. It was a, it was a yeah. blast. That was what, it was eight weeks? Yeah, it was yeah, eight, eight weeks. Course. Yeah. Met a great group of people. Yeah. And it became like a little community. Yeah. Wow. Read some great books. Um, that book, Storyworthy. Storyworthy is the cheat code. Bro. Yeah. Well, this is my Storyworthy by wow. Matthew Dix. Yes. Is a fantastic mm -hmm. book. When you talk about the framework of like what a story is, um, I don't know if I've read a better book on storytelling, and I do not get royalties from his books, and he sold a lot more books than me, mm -hmm. and I think he's got a cohort, so I'm actually pumping up a competitor. Yeah. <laughs> but the book is, it is fantastic. Yeah. It's yeah. excellent. For anybody that does any type of communication, mm -hmm. yep. that book is the cheat code. The cheat yeah. code. Yeah. That's fantastic. And so two more things. Okay. And then we can land the plane. Okay. One, in case you guys thought, well, you know, he's doing a lot, but is, is there anything else he can do? You're rounding up your PhD work. Yeah. So, what, so it's a D-man. It's a D-man. So okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I just want folks to, yeah. right? It's, yeah. it's a, well, hey, ah, listen. Those PhDs want to make sure you know that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, I want to make true. sure that I say, oh, what you're doing, I'm not doing that. I'm not having to learn any languages just, yeah, to, no. just yeah. to read. Just to well, yeah. simply yeah. read it, yes. So yeah, I'm finishing up a doctorate. Where? Um, Emory. Emory, okay. You, yep, so it is... Um, it's in a track called Church Leadership and Community Witness, so mm -hmm. the intersection of the church and social action. And my okay. work right now is surrounding um, how practices of storytelling are used to cultivate the virtue of patience mm. in people that are waiting or working for social change. Wow. Um, with a Can specific you say that one more time? Eye, yeah. That's great using practices of storytelling to cultivate the virtue of patience for people that are waiting and working for mm. social change. Here's all of what that means. Yeah. When it comes to people that are waiting or working for social change, we live now in a very process, how to society, how do we fight mm. against that? How, how do we push back and we imagine if we give people the right instructions, they'll do it. And I found the problem is not how to, the problem is who will. Who are going to be the type of people that persevere through the ups and the downs? We don't need instructions, mm. right? A car with the right directions, but with no fuel, <laughs> stays in the same place yeah. and doesn't yeah. doesn't go. So I think um, the virtue of patience, right? Not to be confused with complacency, mm -hmm. but a patient endurance, right? The people that. Um, plant these acorns and they know that they're not going to sit in the shade of the oak trees of righteousness that they plant, but they've got the patience to wait and to work, yeah. even if things don't change in their lifetime. And when it comes to cultivating virtues, virtues are cultivated through the use of storytelling, not <laughs> propositions, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Like 
we become the characters in the books that yeah. we read, the characters in the movies that we admire, the people that we watch. So all of my work is around that. And the backdrop is a unique um, intersection of something that went on in society that I've seen very few people make the connection about. And it is this, right? Um, in the late 60s, while Black Americans are rounding out their fight for civil rights, um, there is a civil war going on in Nigeria. Um, and um, I think the principles of patience can be extracted from stories that are told across both of those landscapes. And I feel a unique burden to tell that story, one, because uh, people know about the genocide in Rwanda, mm -hmm. and Rwanda is 16 million people. Yeah. People know about apartheid in South Africa. That's 60 million people. When I talk about the Biafran War and what took place in Nigeria in the late 60s, while civil rights are being fought for, very few people know that story or have ever heard of it, and they have no clue that Nigeria is 200 million people. Mm -hmm. It's the seventh largest country in the world. Mm. And there is a civil war that went on within the last 60 years. And most people have no clue that it went on, right? But it was something that was there. And um, yeah, there were lots of faithful uh, Christian leaders and the Christian witnesses, people who exhibited that virtue of patience as those that waited and worked for social change. And I think telling those stories hmm. is something that the global church needs to learn from, yeah. as well as a story that can help to unify uh, and bring solidarity across some of the like segmentation that takes place across uh, black folks in the U.S. Right there mm -hmm. is a um, there is a uh, friction that goes on based on. Ancestry, right? If your ancestors were forcibly brought over on boats mm -hmm. centuries ago, or if they came willingly on mm -hmm. planes decades ago, mm. um, I feel like there's a <clears throat> lack of solidarity between both of those groups because mm -hmm. there's not a common story. And yeah. I think there's a special story that went on in the late 60s. We were separated by what took place across the Atlantic, but um, there's lots that both of those groups can learn from and the mm -hmm. global church uh, as a whole. Yeah. So, Man. Yep. So finishing that up, I'll be done with that this time next year. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what after that? Uh, well, who knows, right? <laughs> yeah, that's uh, right. Yeah. So uh, I'm going to do more stuff surrounding grief this fall. So last fall, uh, we did five cities, you know, Houston. Dallas, Atlanta, DC, LA, and it was this night of yeah, music and <clears throat> poetry and coffee and monologue and talks. And we just had these immersive experiences in grief uh, and hope. And we did five cities uh, last fall. And this fall, we're going to broaden and expand that and do uh, 15 cities so instead of DC. Uh, we're going to do D.C., we're going to do New York, and we're going to do Philly. Hey, yo. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. 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 And so we'll do do that 
this year and then um yeah and long term i mean i i uh share with you in the course of the past month i uh, started a position as the director of resources at christianity today so i get to spend a lot of my time creating uh resources for the global church to think through some of the most important topics mm -hmm. of our day so yeah the foreseeable future is me continuing to create be, and be a dad and a husband. And, huh? Yeah. Be a dad and a husband. Absolutely. And, yeah. Yeah. Man. yeah. First call. First call. It's amazing. Yeah. It's amazing. And somehow he finds time to sleep too, folks. Oh, yeah. Um, somehow. You gotta I learn think, that, man. I was you like, gotta I learn think, that. I know. That's what I'm, that's what I'm trying to tell <laughs> you. I was like, how are you doing all this and resting? Well, the sleep is, or, or the trick is not sleep. The trick is when you wake up. So. Oh, go. Yeah. yeah you got, yeah. Go ahead. Talk about it. Talk about yeah, it. Yeah. So. For the past five years, I get up every morning at 4.30. I go to bed at like 9.30, mm -hmm. but I get up at 4.30. And I started when I was pastoring and had a one and a half year old daughter because mm -hmm. at 7.30 a.m. when everybody was up, that was the end of my free time. Yeah, yeah, everybody yeah. needed something from me. And I was an extrovert, so I just loved to be around people. <laughs> and so I started then and what I found out was, man, three hours at the front of the day when nobody needs anything from me because nobody is up. Yeah. Um, there's so much time to just do. And so I've kept that up and it's my favorite time of the day. Yeah. <laughs> That's the secret. I, I do five, five thirty, but come on. Well, you said four or four thirty. Four thirty. You gotta you gotta get the other side of the day is your challenge. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's true. It's true. It's true. Naps, I'm, I'm a man. Mess. I'm a mess. Naps, I, yeah. I feel like if I drink, he's a he's a nap master. Oh, you got to. I'm a power napper. Yeah. Oh, you got to. <laughs> Ten minutes. Boom. He's actually napped three times on this podcast for twenty seconds each. No, like, I was I was I was uh, I was napping in there before you guys came. Come on. <laughs> no, no, this one I'm. All right, yeah. look. So one more book that I'm gonna tell tell y'all about. Uh, rest while you get more done when you work less. Um, and it's this book that just says. <laughs> Why am I already convicted? Well, the name. Well, the book is this. Look. Work and rest are two sides of the same coin, right? Mm -hmm. So what they bring up is they just go through and they're like, hey, so much has been written about how all these folks throughout history, how they've done a, a whole lot and they talk about how much they work. But what we don't get is not just how much they work, but how intentionally they rest. Uh -oh. mm -hmm. Chapter on napping. This one blew me away. <laughs> Winston Churchill. Okay. Oh, yeah. yeah he was oh, yeah. Good. Like, so this is- They world... also spend time in the tub, too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, this is a world war. Yeah. Bombs are dropping on Germany. Uh -huh. And old Winston was like, hey, listen, y'all. After I have lunch, I'm going to take a shower. I'm going to get into my PJs. And I'm gonna take a 90 minute nap. And I know me being up is not gonna stop bombs from <laughs> dropping. <laughs> but just I need that. And I'm gonna get back up and I'm gonna get ready to go to work. Mm. And it was like historians will go back and say, oh, the key to his success mm. and productivity was that nap that he did. And all these folks pulled from it. JFK nap, Lyndon Johnson nap. 
act, right? So you've got all of these folks that have said, oh, no, no, no. The way I can get stuff done is they're like, I nap during the day, right? It just seems so, yeah, normal. Yeah. So I read that and it's like, man, that's all the... That's all the motivation <laughs> I need. He's napping in a world war. Right? Yeah. People be fine. Man, what? Yeah. Okay. Well, here's my other problem is I... I overapply any, any, <laughs> any information I receive. I'm going to be napping so hard. That's it. The rest of my life. That's it. Yeah. What, what are the guys said? You're very easy to exhort. He's like, but you like, we'll tell you, turn the dial up on something to a three and you crank it, you crank it to a 12. It's like, all right, I'm napping for the rest of my life every single day. That's it. You That's try to it. nap with power and you, you, you can't do it. <laughs> You gotta let it go. That's your problem. Yeah, your do. problem is like I bring so much. You can't, you can't be. I'm gonna nap. I'm gonna nap. Right. It don't work like that. I uh, know. <laughs> and that's the exact attitude and intensity I bring. You know, to you can, I'm gonna nap so hard right now. It's like no, you, you can power lift that way, but you yes, can't nap that you way. You cannot yeah. nap that way. Yeah, man. Well, John, this was fantastic. Oh, thank you for coming on. Thanks thank for you, doing man. this. Yeah, happy to man. Mm get you out to our people yeah, and uh, make you more of a common household name yeah. around these parts. Oh, so, yeah, man. Yeah. Thank you. Oh, man, it was blessed. Yeah. Thanks for tuning in, y'all. Yep. See you guys next time.